With that, let's pray and we'll look at our text. Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity that we have uh, to gather, to worship you, um, to seek you. Um, Father, we thank you for the story of of Mark, this gospel that is uh, unfolding quickly before our eyes. Uh, Lord, we ask that as we uh, continue our journey in this gospel and look at this, uh, just this short story um, from when Jesus returned to Nazareth, we ask that you would help us to understand um, the context, what what happened, um, how it applies to our life, Lord. Um, Lord, ultimately, we ask that you would increase our faith. Lord, help us to know you. Uh, more intimately, more closely. And Lord, may our, um, our faith in you result in, in a, a life of obedience and faithfulness to you. Uh, we are grateful, Lord, for all that you have done and are doing in our lives. And we pray this in Christ's good name. Amen. All right, Mark chapter 6, verse 1. We're going to read basically halfway through verse 6. Jesus went out from there and came into his hometown, and his disciples followed him. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and the many listeners were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things, and what is this wisdom given to him, and such miracles as these performed by his hands? Is not this the carpenter? the son of Mary, and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his own relatives and his own household. And he could do no miracle there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he wondered at their unbelief. Father, we do thank you and praise you for this. We ask that you would guide us now, and it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. All right, so the parallel accounts of today's can uh, Matthew records the story. It's in Matthew chapter 13, verses 53 through 58. Um, it's a turning point in the gospel of Mark. It, it's, it's, it's sort of... Um, I don't know if they say the tide is about to turn. Things are, things are shifting. It's, it, this is, seems to be closing up the first section and introducing the disciples and the readers to what's to come, namely the resistance to the gospel and the persecution that they'll experience. We'll see from this story that as Jesus is rejected by his hometown, uh, his own people, uh, the very next thing that he's going to do is he's going to prepare and send out the disciples sort of two by two and there to go out and he's going to give them instructions and how they're to handle resistance uh, to gospel and, and things that don't go their way, um, all sort of heading towards ultimate, the ultimate re, uh, resistance and the crucifixion of Christ. And so we read it here in verse 1 that Jesus went out from there and he came into his hometown and his disciples followed him. So we have the map up here. Uh, we, we've sort of been in the area. It's all in the area of the Galilee. The Galilee is a region. You can see by the outer border. And then the Sea of Galilee, uh, Capernaum is where the arrow starts. 
And the last few weeks, you know, he crossed over to the other side. He did some work over there. Then he came back, and now he's going to make the journey from Capernaum down to Nazareth. So Nazareth is a, is, is a, is a hilly town. It's, um, it's about 20 miles as the crow flies. And really, there's no mention of it in the Bible. Like, it's just, it, it, you know, what good comes out of Nazareth? Like, there's, there's nothing there. Um, in light of today's story, it's really encouraging when you go to Nazareth today. It's marked by a huge population of Christians. And, and, um, but at the time, there was, there was really nothing there. Um, it's, we're told here that it was his hometown. It's where he grew up. We probably remember the story that as uh, Mary conceived and the drama between uh, Joseph and Mary and how they were going to handle their relationship, this um, this this pregnancy that occurred, um, not from Joseph. Joseph knew the situation. And as he kind of grappled with what to do, um, God appeared to him or an angel appeared to him and said, hey, this, this is of the Holy Spirit. And so Joseph acted honorably and he married her. And, and we see that there was a census. So they went down to Bethlehem for the census. Uh, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And as word got out about this new king, uh, there was that that came about. And so um, they fled to Egypt and spent some time down in Egypt and then made their way back to Nazareth where Jesus grew up. We don't really know how old he was when he returned to Nazareth, but this is his hometown. This is, you know, in this story, we need to, to sort of put flesh on Jesus. We have to realize that he was a little kid. He played ball or whatever they... You know, Whatever little Jewish kids played, but he ran around and played, and friends came over to his house and said, hey, can Jesus come over and play? And mom's like, I know, he's doing his chores. He's got to clean up his room right now. I go out right now. Uh, They they went through the whole educational process. Um, They grew up. Um, I don't know about you guys, but when my, like, 10-year high school reunion came around, the 20-year, I forget what I'm on now, but I have not wanted to go back to my high school reunions, and I, I, you know, like... Some people, I guess, go. Who goes? Do you guys go to your high school reunions? Dave went. There's like two hands, three hands, four, couple. Who doesn't like to go? Like, am I alone? Like, because <laughs> all these people know who you were. For me, it's like, oh, I'm not the same guy that I was, and I don't want to go back to all the drama, and I don't, um, you know. So often, I'll go places and I'll say, "Oh, Gunner, I remember when." It's like, I like, come on. I, I, do we really need to talk about this? I'm married, I have children, I'm a pastor. I was all full of all kind of folly back then. I, I've done a lot, like a lot of work kind of moving my life away from that. And so here Jesus goes back for the high school reunion. He makes his way back. And um, this is the second time that he's returned to Nazareth. The first time did not go well either. Uh, We read that story in Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 29. Again, Jesus shows up um, early in his ministry. They have told me from what I've read and studied, it seems like it was about nine months prior to this incident. Um, Jesus goes back to Nazareth, and he goes into the synagogue. He's invited to teach. He has a reputation that's building. They hand him the scroll, and he reads... um, the selected text for the day, which says that the, uh, the Messiah would come. And Jesus 
reads the passage, he sits down and he says to them, today in your hearing, this has been fulfilled. Basically saying that he was the Messiah. And they didn't like that. And so they chase him out to the edge of town. They try to throw him off a cliff and he escapes. And so he's back for more. Um, When the Sabbath came, verse 2, he began to teach in the synagogue and that many listeners were astonished. Um, So it's a Saturday. It's a time of worship. He's returning to the synagogue where they tried to chase him out of town. Um, He now has the crew of his 12 disciples. The best I can determine that that what we're looking at is we're looking at the 12 disciples. Uh, Sometimes there's disciples that that go up to as many as 70. But this seems to be his his small group of disciples. Uh, They make it his way there. He goes to this, uh, the synagogue, and he's teaching. And I don't know exactly what he's teaching. We're not, the scriptures don't tell us what he's teaching them. And as he taught, uh, we're told that they were astonished. This, uh, this Greek word literally means to, to strike out of one's senses um, as to be stunned with a hit or a blow. So, um, Think of a boxer who takes a strike to the head. It's like, okay, like where, where am I right now? Like what's happening? And this is the picture that is painted um, for the, of, that, that hear what Jesus is saying. They get this strike to their head. They're astonished. They, they're, they're, their minds are blown. They can't quite piece together. This is the Jesus that we knew. Uh, we know him. This is Mary's kid. Um, they're, they're astonished, and, and not in a good way. They're not amazed. They're sort of, uh, we're, we'll see by the end of the story that they're actually offended at him. And they were saying, where did, the man, where did this man get these things, and what is this wisdom given to him? And such miracles as he's performed by his hands. And so there's questions concerning the wisdom, the things that he's teaching them, they are not denying his wisdom. They're not denying the way he taught. We see all through the Gospels that Jesus talked as somebody with authority. So they are asking these questions. Where did, where did he get this stuff? Where did this wisdom come from? He, we're told that he spoke and taught like, like none of the other religious leaders, that he had authority that they didn't seem to have. Um, they acknowledge the miracles that were performed at his hands. Nobody's denying the things that Jesus was doing. There was huge crowds following him. There were known people who um, had serious deformities and injuries, and yet Jesus heals them. And so they're, they're not questioning the actual healings and these miracles that were going on. They were questioning the source of these miracles, which sort of takes us back to chapter 3, when the religious leaders came to town, his family's running a, a sort of an intervention on him, trying to pull him out. Um, they were accrediting his work to Satan. And Jesus says, you know, this is the one unpardonable sin, that if you're going to credit what God is doing in your midst to the hand of Satan, that's unpardonable to, to deny what the Lord is doing. And, and that seems to be what they're doing here. And they continue in verse 3 with their questions is not this the carpenter? And I don't know what you think of when you hear carpenter. A lot of times we think of, like I look, Daniel's right in the front row. Um, 
Daniel's probably actually a good picture, but sometimes I think we think of like Finnish carpenter, woodworking. The Greek word is tekton, which is, um, it's kind of like a really a multi-purpose word. Uh, it could be wood. If you go to Israel today, you'll see that most of their buildings and the most of the things that they're dealing with are, are stone masonry type, type of thing. Um, this word is probably something that's better translated as a handyman, um, like a guy that can sort of fix, create, build, uh, whatever you need done, they can take care of it. Um, it's, it's a very blue-collar sort of job. It wouldn't have been condescending towards him. They would have respected um, a, a carpenter or a handyman. Um, but they're looking at, we know this guy. He didn't make it through the religious system. He didn't go through the, the training. He, he's a guy that worked with his father who was a carpenter and he did his own carpentry. And now he rolls into town as this rabbi with his disciples and all this stuff. Who does he think he is? This is the son of Mary. Now, some commentators will say, oh, this is probably because Joseph has passed away. Uh, we don't really know biblically what happened to Joseph. He likely passed away during Jesus' earthly life. And they say, oh, this, um, this phraseology is acknowledging that Joseph is no longer in the picture. But another group of commentators would all sort of push back on that. They said that we still refer to Father Abraham as being Father Abraham even after his death. And, and it's very Jewish that, it, that generations can skip and you will always be the son of the father. They always follow the, 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 the lineage of the father. And so likely, when they point out that Jesus is the son of Mary, um, they're sort of calling him something that I can't say in church. This is Jesus. We, we grew up with him. We know the story. Mary was pregnant, not with Joseph. Jesus is the product of that, uh, that scandal. And so it's this derogatory statement. They would never refer to somebody following the mother's lineage. And so this, is a, this isn't even an underhanded uh, statement towards him. This is an in-his-face comment derogatory about him. We see the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon are not his sisters here with us. So Jesus had siblings. Um, that's all recorded here. They say, we can see James. He's right here. James wasn't a believer. His whole family rejected Jesus. So not only does the community reject the community, he's saying his family who raised him, who he lived with, who he's now claiming all of these things about him, they're not on board. If you'll turn back with me to chapter 3, I referenced it. But in chapter 3, verses 21, Jesus is teaching. He's doing stuff. The word about him had spread. I mean, all of Israel, outside of Israel, both Jews and Gentiles had been descending upon Jesus uh, for hope of a miracle, hope of healing, hope of something uh, that the very hard lives had given to them. And the name of Jesus had spread, including to Nazareth, including to his family who probably were taking some persecution because of Jesus' name, who they were ashamed of him. And so in chapter 3, verse 
21, we read, when his own people heard of this, they went out to take custody of him. For they were saying that he'd lost his senses. And so earlier in the story, we already see that the whole family had packed up from Nazareth, the other direction, into Capernaum. They found Jesus, and they said, we need to take him. He's lost his mind. Um, We need to get him some help. He doesn't know what he's saying. Um, By the end of it, in verse 31, Jesus is informed that his mother and his brothers had arrived standing outside, and they sent word to him and called him, and he said, who are my mother and brother and sisters? They're those that do the will of God in my midst. And so already we see his family going against Jesus. They are not proud of Jesus at this point in the story. As the crucifixion happens, as He's buried as he rises again. His family members change. James, we know, becomes a, a leader in the early church. He wrote the, the book of James or the letter of James. But at this point, when they bring up his name, this is not good. This is, we know who he is. He's a carpenter. He was born out of wedlock by uh, who knows who the father even is. His brothers, his sisters, who we all know, who all live amongst us, they all reject him. And so this, this is harsh. We're told finally that they took offense at him. I forget who it was. Um, It was around this era, some Greek guy that said, uh, familiarity breeds contentment. And so they were familiar with him. They, because of their familiarness with him, they wanted nothing to do with him. So I'll never forget the election of, of 2000. Um, so I was in the Navy, and a, a family name of ours sort of uh, bubbled up. Uh, my dad graduated from the Naval Academy in 1958, and one of his old drinking buddies was John McCain. And so I was a young Navy kid, you know, like one of my you know, second or third election and old Johnny's name started popping up because he was Johnny in our household. And, and I'm like, oh, that's so cool. My dad's friend's running for president. I didn't care. It wasn't not putting a political stance or anything. It was more like, that's my dad's old buddy, Johnny. And so I remember getting all excited, like, I'm going to go vote. And I, I, call, I either called my dad or I saw my dad. And I said, Dad, what do you think? Your buddy Johnny's running for election. He's like, I'm not voting for him. <laughs> and I'm like, what do you mean, Dad? It's your, it's your old friend. And he sells stuff, and, and I'm like, Dad, he was a POW? And he's like, yeah, it saved his life, you know, because he was going to die of alcohol if he didn't go to a POW camp, you know. And I'm like, Dad, like, what are you saying? And, and I'm like, Dad, this is your old buddy. He's like, sometimes you know too much about a guy to vote for him. And I remember being kind of, you know, at the time, not really, no, I could I thought my dad was joking, but I, he wasn't joking. And, and I kind of think that this is what's going on here. I mean, it's a far different scale than, you know, your dad's college buddy. But this is a picture. John 1, 11 says that Jesus came to his own and his own rejected him. And so Israel would reject him. It began with his hometown. He goes here. He shows up and, they, and they're offended at him. They want nothing to do with him. They want him to go away. They want him to be silenced. And um, Jesus responds in verse 4. A prophet is not without honor 
except in his hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. And so Jesus is dealing with the, Jesus, we knew you when. We knew you before you became this rabbi and having all these crowds and doing all this stuff and we don't, we don't want anything to do with you. Uh, you're a fraud. And Jesus looks at him, he says, you know, a prophet has honor everywhere he goes except his hometown. Then when he goes to his hometown, they want nothing to do with him. And so, kind of the first, like at this, at this point in the story, I'm looking at the time, I know today's message will be shorter than normal, and, and I'm trying to figure out where I want to linger. So my first inclination with this story I, I think that I have the most amount of um, concern for would be for my own children, would be for the children that grew up in the church. Um, I didn't grow up in the church. I, I didn't grow up going to Sunday school. I, didn't, um, I don't even think I went to a church in a building until I became the pastor of this church. So I don't have a whole lot of uh, church experience and so a lot of the, the wounds of, uh, that people have from churches and um, a lot of children that become sort of, for lack of better words, inoculi, uh, an, inocula, inoc, that's the word, it's immunized, <laughs> <laughs> different word. Um, they grew up around it. Oh, I was in church two days after I was born, and I've been in church every single day. I've been around the gospel. I've been around the Bible. I know all the stories. I've heard all about Jesus. And they really just don't care about Jesus. They can walk the walk, or they can talk the talk. They can put on the image of Christianity. Um, and maybe this is an ad- adults that grew up in the church and they just never really connected because they're so familiar with who Jesus is and so familiar with the story that um, it really is kind of lip service. And I-, I know for me, like my kids probably get sick of me talking to them about like, guys, you got to be so thankful for what you have and this family life that you have because this isn't my story. Like this... This is a miracle that you have parents that like love each other and are married and, and are raising you in this environment because statistically that's not what you should have based on, on sort of my upbringing and where I came from. And so there's a sweetness um, of coming to Christ from sort of outside of the Christian culture and there's, 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 there's a a worry within me for those that are, are raised within the church that they don't really experience Christ and his power and his glory because you know everything. Now, I'm not saying that I want to, you know, Anna, Anna grew up in the church. I really should have talked this over with her. You know, she's like, <laughs> I see her looking at me like, where are you going, sir, with this, you know, like, and, and um, you know, a, a lot of our interaction with one another, um, she, she's like, I, I hate the, you know, the, the Calvary Chapel rock star testimony that's, the journey is, you grow up in the church, 
you leave the church, go do a bunch of drugs, do a bunch of horrible stuff, and then meet Jesus in jail, and then come back, and then you're like idolized. No offense to Calvary. I mean, I'm like this other circles I was in, and and uh, and I'm like, that's true. And she's like, but the reality is, is like for me growing up in the church, you know, like we're on total opposite ends of the spectrum. For me who grew up how I grew up, and Anna who grew up as like a missionary kid, the child of a pastor, sort of in church I, three days after you were born probably, um, that, that she says, you know, for me, it's not what I was saved out of, it's what I was saved from. And, and is very much in awe of what Christ has done in her life, not having that and and that's what we want like that's we want people to like truly experience the resurrected christ Um, you don't have to if you're a young person you don't have to go out into the world like the prodigal son and go through the ringer only to learn that the answers were back with christ and so here christ goes to his hometown these people were so close to him so intimate to think to be the brother or sister of jesus i mean like we can see the downside of like you do have a sibling that's perfect like that would be kind of annoying um but to think that you could have that intimacy with him only to reject him at this moment when god was doing something just supernatural and I am like super envious like I have pastor buddies that they were raised in the church and it's like you just see the head start that they get being raised in the church um, that they have more that I don't have and it's like oh that would have been so nice to, to have that and and um but your story is your story I mean it's it's like you I change where I came from but I even in my walking with Christ my fear is that as an adult having experienced the the saving hand of Christ in my life seeing him work amazing things in my life to 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 grow numb to his working that I'm no longer in awe of him that I'm no longer astonished by the things that he's doing that I grow bored of his word because I've already read through the Bible a couple times. Like, I know what it's saying. And I think that there's a warning for us who know him to not grow dull in your relationship with him because he wants to have a vibrant, living, active relationship with you that he is actually doing things in your life today. And we're told in verse 5 that he could do no miracle there except that he laid his hand on a few sick people and he healed them. And so their lack of faith limited, like there's, there's a clear connection that his ability to work and move was held back because of their lack of faith. And so it begs the question Lord, for me, it's like, Lord, what? Where am I lacking in faith? And then my lacking of faith is restricting your ability then to to move and to carry out things in my life because I doubt you. But even in that, there were still a few people that he healed. I love it that that Jesus is so moving during this, this window 
that even in his being held back, it said, well, he even healed a couple people. Like he just couldn't resist himself. Like they were, or these people had some faith in Nazareth. And then verse six, the first part of it, I um, there are some people that are very gifted at getting gifts. And then there are some people that really struggle at, at buying gifts. Um, who are people, are other people here that are good at gifts? You want to raise your hand? Like, yeah. Rachel's a good gift giver. You're good. You've definitely played some good ones on me over the years. I, uh, I, I see her raise her hand. Sorry, this was not in the plan. But I said, oh, try to not think of a pink elephant. And, and the thought was that you'd only be able to think of a pink elephant. Well, in my office the next week, a stuffed pink elephant showed up. And so I'm still thinking of that pink elephant from saying, don't think of the pink elephant. So Debbie is a good gift giver. Um, so the question here is like, what do you give to the guy that has everything, you know? Like this is the thought that I've had. In verse 6, what do you give to Jesus who has everything? How do, you, how do you set him on his heels where he's amazed? And we're told here in verse 6 that they were able to do it and he wondered at their unbelief. Only, whoa, only two times in the New Testament is Jesus, are we told that Jesus is sort of like wowed about something? This, this word um, wondered, it could be translated to wonder, to marvel, to be amazed, to be surprised, to be astonished. And so Jesus, when he goes into Nazareth, and as he sees his hometown, as he sees his family, as he brings his disciples, he's there to share them with them something special. These this is his hometown. This is like a hometown hero. They should be very proud of him. They should be excited for what he's doing, but they're not. They're offended at what he's doing. And we're told in that Jesus, they're being amazed at him. Suddenly Jesus ends with his amazement at their reaction of unbelief. We're only told this twice by Jesus. The, the other time, if you'll turn with me over to Luke, so it's one book after Matthew, Mark, Luke, chapter 7. There's a story in Capernaum that's one of my favorite stories in the New Testament. I know I say that for a whole bunch of stories in the New Testament, and, but really, this one's a good one. And, and, and so, chapter 7 of Luke, verse 1, when he had completed all his discourse... In the hearing of the people, he went to Capernaum. And a centurion slave who was highly regarded by him was sick and about to die. When, Jesus heard of, when he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders asking him to come and to save the life of his slave. When they'd come to Jesus, they earnestly implored him, saying, He is worthy for you to grant this to him, for he loves our nation and it was he who built us our synagogue. So if you've been to Capernaum and you've been to the synagogue there, the bottom part that's made of basalt, the black rock, that's the synagogue that we're talking about. And so there's word that this man, this centurion, he's, he's a Gentile, he's not a Jew, he, he lives there, he has a slave that is sick. He hears that Jesus is coming to town and he sends two of his servants to, or the Jew, two of the Jewish leaders who has a relationship with, go to Jesus, m- make a case for me. Uh, we want to get this guy some help. And so the two leaders go to Jesus and they say, we have this guy. He's worthy of you hearing. He loves our people. He loves Israel. In fact, he funded the building of the synagogue that we have. 
verse 6. Now Jesus started on his way with them. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion said, sent his friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself further, for I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. For this reason, I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But just say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I am also a man placed under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my slave, do this, and he does it. So basically, the guy says to Jesus, I I have authority, you have authority. I understand how authority works. I don't need you to actually come to my house. I can say something and it will be done for me. I know that with your authority, don't trouble yourself. Just say the command and I understand that it will be done. And now in verse 9, when Jesus heard this, he marveled. There's that word again. He marveled at him. And he turned and said to the crowd that was following him, I say to you, not even in all Israel have I found such great faith. And so really in these two statements, in these two towns, in these two occurrences, we have stories that stand sort of uh, polarized from one another. We have Nazareth and Jesus' hometown, his people, um, ultimately that embody um, all of Israel that would reject Jesus and his uh, claim of messiahship. And then you have Capernaum and this this centurion who's not Jewish, but he knows who Jesus is and he so models faith that Jesus says, I am absolutely blown away in what I've seen here today in all of Israel. The greatest faith that has been demonstrated is by a Gentile. He goes to his hometown, his brothers and his sisters and his religious leaders that he grew up with and they're offended at him. And he's blown away at their unbelief. So as I look at the story, we see that Jesus takes abuse from those that he knows and he loves. Um, th- these, these are people that he grew up with. These are people that he had relationships with. These, this isn't like strangers Jesus knew these people in in a very human way. Um, I'm sure they've lost people over the years, that that he mourned with them and that he shared meals with this community. The synagogue wasn't just a a place on Saturdays where they would come and have an hour of religious study. This was was the heart of their community where the children were educated, where Jesus was educated, where where they did life together. And he goes back to his people and they're offended at him. And I don't think it's an accident that the story that Mark's going to go into from this story is he's going to prepare his disciples to go out and to share the good news and to brace themselves for abuse. In Philippians 1.29, the Apostle Paul writes, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe into him, but also to suffer for his sake. And, and, and so that's our model. Like, don't be surprised 
Jesus was rejected by his own people. You who come to Christ from a non-Christian family, you think it's all exciting that you got saved and that you're doing all this stuff. I'll never forget the day when I, in my infancy of Christianity, that my parents, like my dad and my ex-stepmom now, who was my mom, I knew that they were having troubles in their marriage. And as like a 23-year-old kid, I went and bought them each in the Bible and I sat them down and I said, guys, I found the answer. I know your marriage is struggling. I know you're going through a hard time. Like, I'm really proud of myself back then. Like, I'm kind of shocked, like looking back that I had the courage to do this. And I sat him down at the table and I said, I bought you each a Bible. All you need to do is start reading this and applying this in your lives and God will change you. You guys can guess how that story ended. It was not a movie. Um, And so we can be super passionate. We can be super excited. We can be super well-intentioned about sharing our faith. But don't be surprised when you're met with resistance because that's what happened to Christ. Why would you expect any difference? Like, you... I see the huge warning to those of us who are familiar with Christ, whether you've been raised in the church or you've been saved for a long time at this point. I know my prayer for us as a church, for my family, for the kids in the church, that you wouldn't grow so familiar with Christ that you're no longer interested, that you think you know all about him, but the reality is you don't. Like if you have grown so familiar with Christ that you're no longer in awe of him, you, the, the picture that you have of Christ isn't Christ at all. This is the creator of the universe. This is what Colossians tells us, that he spoke creation into existence. And so my prayer is that we would never become what that bumper sticker says, oh, my co-pilot is a carpenter. If Jesus is your co-pilot, you've got the wrong positions. Jesus is Lord. You should be his bond slave. And I do want to say that I think there's, as we look at Jesus' amazement, I want to make the distinction between sort of unbelief and doubt. So I think unbelief in the, the, the situation in Nazareth, this is a cognitive, I don't care what you say about yourself, I don't care who you claim to be, I don't believe you and you have no part with me. Whereas doubt is, Lord, I believe, as I face death, as I face problems, as I face these insecurities, I'm struggling with how this fits with who you are. And I think there's a big difference there. I I think of the man that we're going to get to in Mark chapter 9, that as he approaches Jesus and he makes the mistake, Lord, if you can do this, and Jesus says, if I can do that, and the guy, it seems like with tears in his eyes, he says, I do believe, help my unbelief. Like he acknowledges that he has doubts and he has concerns as he's facing these trials. And And I think there's a big difference. we see in part, and the scriptures tells us that one day we're going to see face to face. So with that, let's pray.
Um, Father, we do thank you and praise you for your word. I thank you for the story of Jesus and uh, making his way to his hometown. And Lord, it's so easy to, to forget about Jesus' humanity, being fully God, uh, fully man, and that he was born of a virgin, raised under a relationship that culturally there was some scandal connected to. And he lived as a child. He lived as a teenager. He would grow up. And yet he was God. And then as he launched at 30 years old until his death, as he demonstrated his Messiahship to see this rejection by his people because of his ordinariness and their familiarity with him. Lord, we, um, we're warned in this. There are many of, of us in this room that have known Christ and about Christ for many, many years, maybe all of our lives. We don't know life apart from knowing about Jesus. And so I pray um, for those of us that are maybe have grown so accustomed of, of Jesus' vernacular and Bible talk that we have lost um, the, the image of Christ in all of his glory. Father, we ask that you would help each one here to experience the, the Jesus of Revelation, the Jesus of Daniel, this, this image of the Christ that makes us fall on our face in awe of him. Father, we pray that as we go about our lives of walking, that you would help us, Lord, to, um, to not fear man, not to fear uh, persecution or mocking or hostility for our beliefs in him but that you would help us to stand uh, boldly with conviction, that we would bring you honor uh, with our lives. Father, we are grateful for the work of Christ, what he has done for us, um, taking the weight of sin, placing it upon himself on the cross, that, um, that he paid for it fully, and that through faith in him we are cleansed, um, as Hebrew says, that our, to our conscience, our innermost being has been redeemed, has been restored, has been washed white as snow. Father, I pray that you would help us to live in this truth. And we pray this in Christ's good name. Amen.